Hello and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-host is Adam Butler of Resolve Asset Management Global. Our special guest is Michael Green, Chief Strategist at Simplify Asset Management. Michael is one of those rare individuals, an intellectual powerhouse, a renowned expert on the intersection of economics, markets, regulation, and politics. Michael has been a student of markets and market structure for nearly 30 years. His controversial proprietary research, for which he has become well-known, examines potential impacts of the market-wide shift from actively managed portfolios and investment funds to systematic passive investment strategies. Michael joined Simplify in April of this year after serving as Chief Strategist and Portfolio Manager for Logica Capital Advisors, LLC. Prior to Logica, Michael managed macro strategies at Thiel Macro, LLC, an investment firm that manages the personal capital of Peter Thiel. And prior to Thiel, Michael founded Ice Farm Capital, a discretionary global macro hedge fund seeded by Soros Fund Management. From 2006 to 2014, Michael founded and managed the New York office of Canyon Capital Advisors, a $23 billion multi-strategy hedge fund based in Los Angeles, California, where he established their global macro strategies, managing in excess of $5 billion of exposure across equity, credit, FX, commodity, and derivatives markets. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Mike, welcome to the show. It's really great to have you. Thank you. That was a very long introduction. Like when you were saying Mike is unique, I thought you were saying he's the only guy against Bitcoin. But anyway, I don't know. Bitcoin, that's the magic word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be pleasure to be back with you. Guys. I know we're the same age, Mike. So your bio makes me feel old, man. <laughs> you know, no, it, it starts to get very long. And uh, <laughs> when you when you look back on it, there's there's a bunch of stuff I still want to do, but yeah. uh, but but that list is getting shorter. So yeah, but it's a good one. It's a lot off. Absolutely. It, it is, it is a good list. I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to the next, uh, the, the, the next decade and a half before I fade off into the sunset. <laughs> so, um, like we've had a chance to chat on several occasions. So thanks again for coming on. And, um, I want to make this conversation maybe a little more timely instead of timeless. Um, as some of our other conversations have been, and I thought given the, um, the energy around the word inflation that we are currently observing um, in the financial sphere, then maybe we could kind of start with that theme. And I think it's, you've got a really interesting take on this and we've touched on this before, but we haven't really um, pulled the thread all the way on it. And I know that um, your, your take on inflation and in particular, the type of inflation that, represents the boogeyman for so many investment managers, which, which is that sort of 1970s stagflationary episode, you've had a very different take on it. And so I think it's worthwhile sort of summarizing quickly, maybe what the, the most common interpretation of that episode is, right? So the oil shock, the Iran-Contra affair, um, the... Um, some of the steps by Volcker to to aggressively raise rates, 
Um, so that's that's one narrative on the 70s deflationary episode. But I know you've got a very different interpretation of that. So maybe just do me a favor to summarize the more popular take on it and then maybe contrast that against your understanding of what happened there. Sure. So the the common take on it, and by the way, it wasn't Iran-Contra. I think you're referring to the Aramco dynamic yes. of uh, the nationalization. Um, so the, the, the common interpretation of it is, is that the, you know, William McChesney Martin fed was in the pocket of Nixon and overly accommodative to the desires of Nixon and others, um, to effectively goose the economy. Right. And so you can take this back into the 1960s with the guns and butter fighting the Vietnam war and simultaneously the war on poverty with the Johnson administration, et cetera. And the argument is, is that interest rates should have been raised faster and more aggressively in order to take the punch bowl away. The, my problem with that, and, and so the, the phrase that is referred to as in reference to the 1970s is stagflation, stagnant economic growth, particularly exhibiting high levels of unemployment and high levels of inflation, which is in, um, under a traditional Phillips curve framework can't exist, right? Because the Phillips curve is supposed to be the relationship between unemployment and inflation. It is presumed that unemployment represents slack in the economy, that labor is 70% of the production function. And therefore, when you have a tight labor market, you should have higher inflation. When you have a weak labor market, you should have lower inflation. That I believe is a pretty reasonable articulation of the traditional story that effectively Volcker did the right things, but he just did it later. And therefore it had to be much more aggressive. Um, and so he saved, you know, the global economy, the U S dollar, et cetera. Uh, there's a second story that's often told around it, which is the dynamics of the U S going off the gold standard and ending dollar convertibility. And that that somehow drove the inflationary episodes. Um, all of them basically fall into one form or another, what I would refer to as cost push inflation dynamics, right? So the costs went up, therefore prices were raised, therefore X, Y, Z happens, right? So there's a couple of problems with that story from the way I see it. Um, the most important one being the observation of stagnant economic growth, which does not fit at all with the data sets. And so what you actually see, if you go back to the 1970s, is the highest sales of cars on a per capita basis in history, the highest rates of household formation in history, the highest rates of household construction. In fact, today, for the first time in a very, very, like in an almost unfathomable time period, we have nearly as many homes under construction today in the United States as we did in 1974, right? Now that actually should shocked the hell out of everybody because we went through this giant housing bubble, right? And we had fewer houses under construction than we do today, which is kind of an amazing thing to realize, right? The second part of that though, is, is that I now have to go back into the 1970s when the U S population was roughly half the size that it is today. And I had higher numbers of homes under construction. I had higher housing starts in the 1970s. And in fact, the 1970s, right? A decade that included not one, but not two, but three recessions, 72, 74, and 78, 79, um, had the fastest rate of job creation of any decade in U.S. history. 
That's there are more jobs created in the 1970s than there were in the 1990s and the 2000s and the 2010s. In fact, 2010s are the first decade that comes close. And obviously that ended with, and I'm cutting it off at 2019, um, that ended immediately after with the coronavirus pandemic in, in 2020, right? So you, you had this extraordinary disconnect between what the actual data says in terms of economic activity and the story that is behind it, right? Which is this idea of stagnation leading to high levels of unemployment. My analysis suggests that what actually happened in the 1960s and the 1970s was that you had a unique demographic push, basically on a global basis, um, that did two things. One, it brought a vast increase in the number of consumers into the global economy. And so one of the ways that I flip, try to flip things on its head is to remind people of what a labor force actually is, right? So a labor force is people who would otherwise be sitting on their sofas who suddenly decide, you know what, I want to increase my consumption. Therefore, I will sacrifice le leisure time in exchange for productive capacity where I'm theoretically going to get paid for it, right? Now, if you are honest with yourself about the value that you created early on in your career, you understand that you really did not create any value, right? When you enter, when I entered into the banning company management trainee program, I actually subtracted productivity. Why? Because I was taking experienced consultants, you know, and, and individuals who knew how to actually do something for a client and forcing them to stop doing that, right? And to train me in the process, right? That generally is true anytime somebody enters the labor force. It's effectively a gamble that's being made by the employer that you're going to eventually become a contributing member of their labor force. Very unusual that you would contribute on day one, right? And so just think about what actually happened in the 1970s, which is that you had a um, unprecedented number of people entering the global labor force, and in particular entering the U.S. labor force where women suddenly began to enter the labor force. Minorities after the Civil Rights Act began to enter the official labor, labor force became eligible for much higher incomes than they historically could have, became eligible to buy homes or to rent apartments or to buy furniture and to qualify for credit in a way that they never could have before, right? And so the, to me, the story of the 1970s is a fantastic one-off outward shift in the aggregate demand function that required a capital deepening in order to keep a capital labor ratio relatively constant, much less rising, which tends to be associated with improved productivity characteristics, right? So you had this outward shift in aggregate demand that required incremental demand in order to fill in the capital requirements and everything else. Um, and then it was exacerbated by the unfortunate coincidence of the, um, uh, the oil crisis in which the U.S. was suddenly faced with not only the loss of its ability to supply its own oil, but when it needed to go into the global markets, effectively the the um, dynamics of Arab nationalization and and uh, the Israeli conflicts that we were peripherally involved in led to the Arab oil embargo and a, a dramatic reduction in terms of the quantity of oil that was available. And people tend to forget that about 30% of the U.S. productive capacity in terms of factories, et cetera, at that time were based on oil, right? So diesel generators, et cetera. So simultaneously, we had this need to deepen the capital. We had this significant outward shift in the aggregate demand function. Uh, and at the same time, we lost about 30% of our capacity because it became non-economic tied to the oil shocks, right? Now, the right answer there 
is to cut interest rates and to encourage investment, to encourage replacement of that capacity, um, to introduce, you know, nuclear or, uh, thermal coal or various other choices that, um, you would hope would be available to you. But instead we chose to use a framework in which we address the problem as the issue is prices. And therefore we're going to try to cool the economy by raising interest rates. Right. And that raising interest rates has another perverse effect, which is we all remember being 22 years old and going to furnish our first apartment. And you didn't really stop and think about what the interest rate on your credit card was when you went to buy the furniture or the cool stereo system or the dishes or anything else that you needed at the suit that you needed at the time, et cetera. Right. And so you had a younger generation that was the dominant feature that was effectively cost agnostic in terms of the access to credit. Another interesting one-off effect was you had had credit cards invented, right? They dramatically increased the quantity of unsecured credit that was available. So that younger generation had access to credit in a way that had nothing to do with interest rates. It didn't matter what the Fed did from an interest rate standpoint on that front. Um, and so you had all of these factors that hit on the demand, they didn't really affect the demand side. That was really this demographic feature, but on the supply side, you crank up interest rates. What's the first thing a business person is going to do when they say, well, do I invest in building a new factory or do I invest in building new power sources for my factory? What's my cost of financing? Yeah. So, so that's the way I see the 1970s is it was a series of policy errors on the part of the central bank to raise interest rates and effectively create conditions under which investment couldn't happen in the United States, a demographic and population surge that meant any time the economy slowed down. I mean, just to put this in context today, the U S labor force is actually zero growth, if not possibly shrinking in many situations. Um, it was growing about three and a half percent a year, about four and change at some points during the early 1970s. Every single year, that meant that you needed to expand capacity by about 5% before you even began to accommodate anything else. And we just didn't do it, right? And so if you have effectively consumers that are um, unwilling to forego consumption, right? They're not sensitive to the higher interest rates, et cetera. Then the only solution set is to import that. And that's exactly what happened. Right. The U.S. suddenly transitioned to a massive import deficit, which in turn then began to affect the U.S. dollar in very foreseeable ways. So, you know, and, and, and the only reason I care about this, right, I mean, it feels like it's this, you know, esoteric thing, like, you know, what what actually caused the inflation in the 1970s and will it return? But part of the reason that this is a real problem is because our policymakers have bought hook, line, and sinker, this idea that if they were to tighten monetary policy, they could forestall inflation. Or if they were to lower interest rates, that they could remove, in, you know, they could increase inflationary pressures. And I think what we've seen over the past decade is the evidence that that's broadly not true. Yeah. Right. Um, the lower the interest rates, the lower inflation has gone in a very neo-fisherian way. Now, I don't think it's exactly that dynamic. But I do think that we are ignoring the fact that throughout the developed world, instead of needing 5% more capacity every single year, all else being equal, we're probably shrinking it. So, and so there's less yeah, demand. I mean, it feels like, like no matter what the Fed has done for the last 10 or 12 years has amounted to any inflation at all. 
right? Well, and this is part of the point that I would make. It's very hard to create inflationary conditions when if you do nothing other than maintain the existing capacity, next year there's going to be less need for that. <laughs> yeah, Can right. you explain that? I mean, yeah. it, 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 and, and that's what we've seen. I mean, if you pull up seri data series like capacity utilization in the United States, again, in defiance of the argument that, you know, Oh, you know, the economy was stagnant in the 1970s. We ran continually at very elevated levels of capacity utilization. Mid 1970s, we were at 95% capacity utilization. Today, I believe we're about 77%. So is it your, is it your position that the reason why it looked like stagnation or very low economic growth in the late sixties and seventies is because a surge in new workers added meaningfully to the denominator of the productivity ratio. It didn't yet add meaningfully to the numerator because they were not yet productive workers and because we were overestimating inflation measures. So if you look at real GDP, the combination of that, it looks like stagnation, but it, but in reality, it's just kind of mismeasurement or um, not recognizing sort of one-off or, or time shifting dynamics in productivity. So I think that's actually you, you hit on the second one more than the first, right? So the idea of overstating inflation, I think that's actually critically important to understand the dynamics of the data that we see from the 1970s. And we all want to complain in one form or another about the BLS or various other, um, you know, uh, reporting agencies around the world, understating inflation due to things like hedonics, et cetera. And so we're, we're very attuned to the idea, well, my costs are going up faster, right? And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there, there's absolute truth to some of that, right? That, that inflation as reported by the BLS is one going to be understated relative to every individual's experience, because you personally don't do the hedonic calculations that say, you know, how much more valuable is a TV from this year versus a TV from last year? How much am I willing to pay for a 2022 car model versus a 2021 car model, right? And, you know, how much am I going to pay for a renovated apartment versus an unrenovated apartment, right? These are the sorts of things that, that actually do play in and that you need to consider in, in the calculation of inflation. The 1970s, I would argue that one, we had not adopted many of those. Two, in particular in the 1970s, the mechanism that we used for reporting inflation was tied to the cost um, for given home ownership rates in the United States of about 65%. The cost of housing was disproportionately tied to the prevailing mortgage rate. And so every time the Fed hiked interest rates, it raised the inflation number and that then created conditions, right, as you use the calculations for what actual economic activity is happening. When we talk about productivity, we use a real number to calculate that productivity. If you overstate inflation, you understate productivity, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so those are really critical components. There's also just a component of age, right? So the most productive time in your life Adam, again, you and I are about the same age, Pierre. I'm going to guess you're in that range, but you know, unfortunately it's about 45 years old <laughs> is your peak productivity, yeah. right? So, um, I am officially over the hill right now that <laughs> thrills Bitcoiners all over the world, but 
the reality is, is that I have to accept that. And I already experienced dynamics of like, man, I am not as hardworking and I can't think as fast. And, you know, now I, I have a much greater body of knowledge that I can draw from. And so that's helpful in a thinking man's job, but I am not gonna, you know, change the world by inventing a new mathematical technique at 50 years old, right? It's just not going to happen. Um, and so, but on the converse side of that, if a disproportionate fraction of the labor force and the growing fraction of the labor force is very young, right? That's also going to play in. There's actually a really interesting study done by a gentleman by the name of Cesar Cicchetti, I believe, um, uh, looking at the dynamics of productivity versus age. And it's a very clear, you know, 45, you basically cross over, right? Um, if you're much younger and the economy is dominated by that, I get productivity is going to be lower than you otherwise would expect because you're not properly calculating the productivity associated with training a human being. I, I feel right? I, that I, is the form of investment that we just don't show in our, I feel like I've become more productive since 45, but maybe, maybe well, that was because I wasn't, that, that's because <laughs> you've started taking the blood of young men into your, <laughs> you, you've joined that group of people, but, um, <laughs> The, uh, the vampires are immune to that. Um, but no, I, 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 I think it's important for people to understand that, like, we don't think about these things. We don't adjust for the calculations in that framework. And that absolutely plays a role. I think it's the inflation discussion <laughs> is, is so timely because obviously we are observing an uptick in absolute levels of inflation. And I know some are observing that the rate of change on aggregate inflation measures is now sort of rolling over a little bit. And so we may be able to confirm those who've been sort of chanting about transitory or transient inflation um, yep. in, in coming months. What, what, I want, I want to explore what exactly is happening here. Like what are the underlying mechanics that, that are driving yeah. inflation right now, but I also want to dig into the subtext because there's inflation, which is a mechanical, um, reality in the economy right now as a function of bottlenecks and underinvestment in certain areas of the economy that we're now just beginning to see. We're not able to ramp up marginal production at a rate that we need to, given the rebalancing that we were observing yep. and onshoring and that kind of stuff. And then there's sort of the meme of inflation, right? As sort of Ben Hunt would characterize it in quotes with a big exclamation mark. Yep. And I, I feel like the two are not necessarily even connected, right? So let's, let's first talk about the mechanical reality of inflation at the moment. Where is it? What's causing it? What is the likely trajectory of it, in your opinion? Where are we likely to see it be less transient versus more transient? And then let's follow on with a discussion of sort of the inflation kind of moral panic or political panic or political football that's being used um, uh, to kick around this package that's being debated in Washington. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's brilliantly said, by the way, right? There is this dynamic of inflation, the performance art, right? You know, which is, you know, um, I think the most recent one that we just saw is uh, uh, Jack Dorsey of Twitter saying, for inflation is here now, right? I mean, uh, it's coming. It was in everything. It was so surreal to see him tweet on the yep. Yeah. I, my guess is he was on acid. Um, <laughs> the, so, so first, like, remember what is inflation and what is not inflation, right? So 
a shortage that is caused by a supply chain disruption that temporarily leads to prices being elevated as you ration demand for a particular good or service. That's not inflation, right? Now we all want to be like, well, what, what are you talking about? Prices went up. That's inflation. Inflation is a rise in the general price level, right? It's basically everything goes up. It's not tied to a particular shortage that exists in the economy. Would it be inflationary if we suddenly discovered that Tamaguchi toys, you know, raised our fertility levels and made us much more attractive to the opposite sex, right? No, that would be an outward shift in aggregate demand that raised the relative attractiveness of Tamaguchi toys versus other toys, which would presumably fall in price, maybe less given some sticky dynamics, but ultimately there would be reduced demand that would then show up as clearance for, you know, Xbox devices and everything else because there had been replacement for Tamaguchi, right? A lot of what we're seeing right now is a function of a fundamental change that happened in our consumption basket where because we were in lockdown and because we couldn't spend our money going to restaurants to dine at a restaurant or because we couldn't spend money going to the movie theater, instead we chose to buy a new flat panel TV or to install a fire pit in our backyard that made it more enjoyable for us to sit around and eat barbecue or, you know, various other events, right? So there was a massive a uh, switch that happened in the economy. The most salient example of this is in toilet paper, right? So toilet paper early in the pandemic, we entered into shortages, right? Why did we enter into shortages? It's not because suddenly Americans were engaged in more bowel movements or people around the world were engaged in more bowel movements. What you actually had was people were doing them at home as compared to the office or at a restaurant or at a gas station or anywhere else, right? And so there was an almost unlimited surplus of those terrible giant, you know, super thin paper rolls that you get at, you know, most cheap offices, um, or at gas stations or restaurants, right? Where you're like, oh my God, I don't do anything other than, than this conversation is taking a real unexpected turn. And I have to say, <laughs> that's the we're, we're deep into the discussion of like pretty sensitive backs, right? Um, but it, the, you know, the very comfortable double and triple ply quilted stuff from Charmin and, and Northern, right? Just it wasn't available because we needed more of it, right? Now that's not inflation. That was a substitution effect, right? And we fully understand how that happens. And now if you go to Target or you go to Sam's or Costco or wherever you go, you do your shopping, there's nearly unlimited supplies of toilet paper because we ramped up production. And by the way, when people start going back to their offices and start going back to restaurants, et cetera, there's a reasonable chance we're going to experience shortages of giant rolls of really terrible <laughs> toilet paper, right? Um, so, you know, those sorts of supply disruptions, I think it's really important to understand that that's actually not inflation, right? Certainly not in the Ben, um, it, in, in Ben's sense of, you know, um, inflation, the performance art, right? Which is, you know, this new thing that is sweeping through that everyone is warned about and in particular warned about following the money printing in 2008 and 2009 and failed to emerge then, but this time it's gonna show up, right? Everything is different this time. I just don't buy that, right? I mean, uh, you know, again, it takes you back to the 1970s. What was unique about the 1970s? Every single year, we knew the demand was gonna rise somewhere between four and 7%, right? 
just tied to a combination of demographics, aging of the population, you know, modest productivity gains, et cetera, right? We just knew that that was ultimately going to happen. Um, at, you know, the rest of the world coming into a consumption basket, right? China re-entering when Nixon goes to China, et cetera. All these things contribute to rising living standards, increased consumption, that outward shift in the aggregate demand curve is really hard to keep up. We just don't have that this time. Okay, but uh, just to push back a little bit, it, it, first of all, I want to explore what's going on in, in two areas that are a particular, um, I don't know if concern is the right word, but let's say they factor in prominently in the inflation basket, and, and those are labor and um, shelter costs, right? So yep. what's happening with labor, what's happening with shelter? Um, and obviously, we're also seeing um, a pretty substantial surge in commodities, right? So, so maybe let's just pause there and talk about shelter, labor, and commodities. What are you seeing there? Sure. So first let's, let's start with commodities, right? So many of the commodities that were directly exposed to the factors that we're highlighting, things like lumber, for example, have already begun to retreat significantly. And you saw that the challenge with lumber was actually on the processing side, right? So if I looked at timber, if I looked at raw logs, I never saw that price spike, right? It was the processing part of it. And that actually then brings in something that I think is really important. I've highlighted this on Twitter and I've, I've hit it elsewhere. Um, I've had conversations on Real Vision with Matt Stoller, um, who I think is very much in touch with this. You know, what happened in lumber is that we have consolidated all of the lumber supply. And so it wasn't a function of a local lumber mill that now turns your log into a two by four. It became a function of was Louisiana Pacific or West Fraser or others willing to take the risk and expand capacity given that they didn't have to in a now deeply consolidated industry, right? And so there was a huge element of monopolistic, I'm sorry, is what I was looking for, monopolistic pass-through of pricing power that, again, is very difficult to create in an environment that is like the one we have today where demand is not expanding that much, right? The unique feature of a, mono of a, of a monopoly is that they always underproduce, right? So, so the characterization of a monopolist is, is that they will produce to average cost, this very simple econ 101, and before anyone else jumps all over it, like fully understand I'm not using simple econ 101 to do all of the analysis, but simply to illustrate this, right? So a monopoly produces at the average cost. They want to maximize the profit against the average cost because they don't have to respond to competitive pressure. Whereas a competitive market is going to produce at the marginal revenue equals marginal cost, right? So that means that under a monopoly, you're always under supply. Well, what happens when you have an outward shift in aggregate demand caused by this sort of mix shift? Right. Well, guess what? They get windfall profits. Sure. Yeah, right? So I think and, and, that's a really good point about lumber. And I think you could apply this sort of similar logic in, in a few other commodity markets like natural gas, for example, which, which, which does have this tendency of it's very difficult to expand the production of natural gas. Um, it is. Um, it, it, it really doesn't even, I just want to, I, I want to emphasize it's not even so much natural gas. If you look at natural gas prices, they have not in any way 
risen to the levels of, you know, 2003, 2004, et cetera. They remain well off historical. In Europe, they have, but, but yes, in, in North America, that's true. But that's actually a very important distinction, right? Again, so, you know, LNG has exploded mm -hmm. and Europe has exploded. Europe has exploded very simply because Russia has them by the short mm -hmm. hairs, right? The, and, and Europe, by the way, needs to actually start to fully understand just how vulnerable they are. Right. They, yeah. You know, they're really enjoying the schadenfreude associated with the rise of China versus the United States. But like Europe at the end of the day is a peninsula on the Eurasian continent, right? They're extraordinarily vulnerable unless they have alliances across the sea that can effectively give them a place to retreat and places to gain, you know, um, additional resources from it's a very dangerous game they're playing right now. Agreed. Um, but the, um, but the, the, so if I look at natural gas itself, you know, then you also, you raise into the issue of yes, what we went through in the energy markets was a catastrophic impact associated, not actually with the production, but the storage, right? So when the entire economy shut down processes that can't efficiently shut down, like oil drilling, right? Or oil well production more accurately than oil drilling right? Or natural gas production. Like you can't just shut off natural gas pipelines. Mm -hmm. They don't work that way, right? You can't just shut off oil pipelines and storage facilities and, and well production, et cetera. And so what happened was we accumulated a record quantity of supply that if that in the oil markets had to be cleared with negative prices at one yep. point, right? I mean, oil and natural gas are toxic. You can't take them into your bathtub, store them in your house, et cetera. Right. Um, so you have these unique characteristics that play through that market and that sort of catastrophic signal absolutely affected the production dynamics, absolutely affected the forward, the, the forward production curves. It, you'd be a fool not to say that. And if you go back to April, May of last year, I was saying you're going to have inflationary conditions associated with these industries, right? And that is the majority of what we're seeing now onto the housing front, right? So the housing front, again, it is a huge mixed shift issue. Right. So you had two, two events that occurred. One is that you eliminated the ability to evict people from their apartments. So part of what happens in general, particularly at the lower level in housing costs is that you have fairly regular evictions somewhere in the neighborhood of 8% of all housing of all rental housing has some form of turnover in that nature every year. By killing that, you effectively reduce the rate of change in the lower end of the market, mm -hmm. right? Now that is naturally going to affect the data that we receive in terms of the price of rental units, right? Because if we're not actually showing transactions happening at the lower end and we show transactions happening at the higher end, guess what's going to happen to the marginal rent, right? The marginal rent is going to go up a lot because we're effectively, again, mix shifting towards more luxury oriented stuff. The second thing that ended up happening was that we ended up transitioning quite dramatically towards home ownership and people wanting to be out of cities, right? And that created an outward shift in demand for a particular type of housing. We're going through that. We're working our way through that. And what we're actually discovering, if you look at things like the absolute quantity of occupied housing in the United States, and it's easy to focus on the United States because we tend to have pretty robust data sets, but when an event like coronavirus hits, those data sets that are deeply refined, deeply estimated, deeply seasonally adjusted, et cetera, 
they start to fall apart pretty quickly, right? How do you seasonally adjust to coronavirus? Uh, so if you actually look at those data sets and you add up the number of supposedly occupied rental households and the supposedly occupied ownership households, you either have to believe that we had this massive surge in household formation that is now actually retreating and we now have negative household growth, or you have to accept the fact that some of the data that we received was just wrong. Well, alternative, right? And like, for example, we know that institutions have now entered the uh, single family residential housing market and yep. multi-unit market in a way that they had not been um, previously, right? I, I forget the numbers of what BlackRock is deploying into the single family housing market. For example, you've got- That's an astonishing amount. I and agree. you've got obviously- owners of homes who are because of profound gains on their primary residences are now able to take on excess credit and purchase, you know, more than one home, right? Second homes, third homes, fourth homes, like an astonishing proportion of single family units in many cities are owned by a very small number of individuals or, or companies, right? And, and that's a relatively new phenomenon. So, you know, maybe the, the availability of credit and the increase in collateral, the value of collateral has enabled a broader um, group of investors to start to own these homes as rental properties and just as speculation, right? So maybe they're unoccupied because they're less concerned with generating rental income and expecting to be able to just flip the, the home in a short amount of time. Yeah. So I have another, so I'm, 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 I just, I, yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. I Sorry. just wanted to, to, to add to the, uh, the question, uh, with regards to demographics and, and with regards to the, um, millennial and Gen Z demographic, uh, is that, is that potentially the new uh, pig in the Python in terms of uh, coming in and new household formation, new, you know, consumption where, where, you know, Gen Z and, and millennials are, are buying their, their own TVs and buying their own appliances and their own furnishings for their new homes. Um, are there any, do you have any thoughts on, on how that might contribute to uh, demand for house households or demand for homes? Um. So that has been the forecasted pig in the Python for an extended yeah. period of time. Um, and it's failed to emerge because I would argue we effectively kneecapped our younger generation, <laughs> yeah. right? There were, and, and, and that wasn't the entire thing, right? Yeah. So, you know, again, remember that what creates demand for housing, um, is not just the number of people, but where those people are. Right. And so, um. If I go back and I look at California in 1969, when I was conceived and my parents had bought a house in, in Northern California, um, the population was somewhere in the neighborhood of 19 million people, right? The population of the Bay area was around 2 million people, about 750,000 of those lived in San Francisco, right. about 750,000 lived in San Jose and the remaining 700,000 were spread throughout the Bay area. Right. Oakland was a small right. population center. Like by the time you actually come down to it, like, man, you know, Mountain View and Sunnyvale and the, and Santa Clara and the core of Silicon Valley actually was basically agricultural, had very low population, uh, levels. Um, 
that changed dramatically. Today, I believe the number is somewhere in the, the neighborhood of 40 million people live in California. I think it's actually 43 million people live in California. Um, and the Bay Area's population has exploded, right? Somewhere in the neighborhood of eight and a half million, right? So we didn't create any more land. We didn't really subdivide a lot of the properties. Um, to a certain extent, we did. But we created massive shortages in that particular area, right? right? So that was very different, I would argue, than what we've seen up to this point. The other feature that has emerged, and, and I, by the way, I don't want to discount the, the BlackRock dynamic. We'll come back to that mm -hmm. in one second. So the, um, the other thing, though, that has transpired is that people have decided to move, right? So they moved to Texas, they moved to Idaho, they moved to Florida, et cetera. And that's tightened up these markets relative to other markets. Um, the dynamic of pricing power and monopolistic behavior, I would argue, is enhanced by players like BlackRock who don't actually buy houses on the basis of a single mortgage, right? They don't go and qualify for each individual and they have a giant line of credit and they buy based on the collateral associated with everything that is being bought, right? So when the price goes up for real estate, ironically, that increases uh, BlackRock's buying power in a way that it doesn't for an individual household, right? Right. Same thing. I would argue, argue is broadly true for Zillow and others, but that actually brings up then the last point, which is we also have seen all these things hit at the same time. It's effectively a, an outward shift in the aggregate demand function that's created by that capability, right? So if I have a line of credit and I use collateral to buy as compared to the ability to service that debt, yes, the demand is going to be higher, right? And ultimately, if we allow that to continue, then you will see increased monopoly power and you will see BlackRock able to, ex to exact prices that otherwise they might not be able to, right? Um, just from a personal voting standpoint, I will tell you that following the global financial crisis, I bought a whole bunch of rental properties. I'm in the process of selling my last four units. So I will no longer be a landlord to give you some yeah. idea of, of what I think. And, and if I um, have my free choice associated with it, with the last child about to leave the house this year, um, I will cease to be a large homeowner as well. Um, I, I'm, I don't view housing as a great asset class right now. Yeah. Well, it hasn't been a very good asset class historically with exceptions <clears throat> over the last 10 or 15 years, maybe. Um, so, okay. So that's housing. Now, what about labor? Right. I mean, obviously we're seeing a substantial labor shortage in uh, many sectors of the economy, or at least the perception of that, unless it's being like insanely misreported. Um, we're also seeing an uptick in, you know, minimum wages paid. Um, what's happening in the labor market? There seems to be a, a lot of mysteries, unresolved mysteries. Do you have any clues yeah. to offer? Um, so it, one of the things that's become very apparent to me as I do more public speaking and podcasts, right, is, is I just want to emphasize that I'm not in any way, shape or form denying the observations that you guys are making, right? I'm offering the explanations behind them and I'm saying, are they going to be durable or are they not? Right. Right. Um, on the labor front, I, you know, this is very frustrating to me because we've had a trucker shortage for over a decade. Right now it's suddenly getting the attention that it deserves because we have a real trucker shortage now. Yeah. 
The reason why that's actually happening is, is the relatively finely tuned logistics functions that had allowed stuff to come into a port, be transferred to a train, right? That train then transferred it, you know, took it 75% of the way it needed to go because it could then be leisurely delivered by truck to the end mile destination has now been changed by the logistics of a, um, uh, disruption, right? So if I know that something is coming in behind schedule, instead of putting it on a train, I'm going to put it on a truck, right? Instead of putting it on a boat, I'm going to put it on a plane, right? And so we'll see that transfer in terms of an increase in, in freight miles as things are pulled forward, right? We're seeing all of that. And all of that causes localized strength because if I try to ship something into the port of Los Angeles, where it has been optimized for rail or the port of Long Beach, where it has been optimized for rail to make that transfer. And I try to load everything onto trucks. Well, one, I can't take a container and put it onto a truck in the same way. It just doesn't work as efficiently. But like, why is right? I can't such put... a reorientation of logistic, um, workforce. Because things need to be on time. You know. Right. I mean, Christmas presents are only Christmas presents for basically two months out of the year. Right now, what we're already beginning to see on the other side of that is the spending intentions change. Right. So this, this data is just now starting to come out and it's basically pointing out that those who are at the lower end of the socioeconomic strata are rapidly exhausting the excess savings, the surplus savings that were created by the stimulus and benefits associated with the coronavirus. They're already saying our expectation is to spend far less money. Right. All right. Look, the spending intentions are down 22% for the bottom quintile in the United States right now. The upper quintile right? It's flush. We've seen the wealth effect associated with rising, with rising stock prices, bonds on the risk side, the credit side have recovered, you know, so they're flush and we are absolutely seeing increased demand and increased spending intentions there. And that tends to be where wall street analysts hang out by the way. Right. Um, but at the lower end, we're seeing remarkable signs of weakness that we haven't seen for a very long period of time. I think that's something that people should be paying very close attention to. Because the minute we've solved the, sh the, the time component of getting stuff on the shelves for Christmas, what we didn't have this year is what normally plays in. You can see this pull up the pattern of loadings at Long Beach or Los Angeles ports. And you'll see that there's a seasonal slowdown typically associated with the Chinese New Year, but also what tends to be a low period, right? There's no huge buying holidays associated with Easter in the United States, right? Um, so you tend to have that spring slowdown and it just didn't happen this year, right? So there was no opportunity to clear out the backlogs, et cetera. Right. Um, so my, my fear is, is that we're going to actually find that there's less inventory cleared out of stores than people expect this Christmas, particularly with the lower end, uh, purchasing intentions lower. And then the, the, when we wake up in the spring, we're going to discover that many of these supply bottlenecks, you know, remove themselves. We'll move back to being able to put stuff on rail as compared to truck to truck, right? We'll be able to go back to putting things on boats instead of planes. And all of a sudden we're going to find out that, wow, we didn't quite have as much inflationary pressure as we thought. So that's a really good way to sort of segue into inflation as a mean, 
right? Which well, I, oh, oh, sorry, and I, I wanted to know one more thing. You hit on the labor oh, camp. Yeah, what did right? I, yeah, and, let's cover that. Yeah, and so so the reason why I actually am I, like people are not dumb, right? You, you know, some segments of our society may argue they're deplorable, deplorable, but like what you know is coming is that McDonald's is spending more money on kiosks that removes the need for cashiers, right. that they're spending more money on automation that removes the need for back office cooks, right? We're seeing the same thing happen increasingly with online ordering and order in advance for takeout, right? Fast casual chains have now increasingly moved in that direction, right? So, so we're moving to a world in which increasingly robots for lack of a better phrase are going to replace much of the less skilled humans that play in those roles. How do you attract people to do temporary work? Well, you pay them more, yeah. <clears throat> right? But the minute the situation resolves itself, yeah, sorry, you were temporary, right? Last in first out accounting. So how do you go back? How do you, how do you, if you raise wages right now in order to overcome this, this shortage hump, that's happening. How do you go, like, let's say you go from 12 bucks an hour to 16 bucks an hour plus bonuses, signing bonuses. Yep. And then, and then next year or the year after things sort of resume normalcy and normal hiring takes place. How do you go back to 12 bucks an hour and no signing bonus? You don't. You, so, so you it's sticky. But you fire, you, you, you fire a third of the people. So you don't care. Yeah. Okay. But then, but then everyone you hire from that point forward is going to be under the new wage regime. That's fine yeah. though. Because, and that's good, by the way, that's the whole point of technological yeah. progress. Yeah. Right? But it sucks if you're the person who got laid off. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, you know, there, there's no mystery to why we have a trucker shortage, right? We've had Elon Musk and everyone else telling us for a decade that, oh, we're just around the corner. We're going to replace all the truckers. Right. Like if you think that's not, you know, making its way to the dinner table in the families that historically have been involved with trucking, or you think that didn't make its way into the negotiations, right. For the past decade in terms of an increasingly consolidated trucking industry and those who would choose to drive the trucks, right. And use this leverage of, yeah, well, you know what, if you don't do what I tell you, if you don't put in the extra hours, I'm going to fire you. Right. Uh, it's your responsibility to be here on time. I just have this picture. I have this, this, uh, this, this vision that there's people like, you know, there's this 10 million jobs that are available out there. Maybe, maybe only three or 4 million of those jobs can get, can get refilled. Uh, and then you have automation, but I'm just thinking, you know, there's this whole cohort of people who don't want to return to work because the incentive isn't high enough. And I'm thinking, you know, how, how far are they going to push their luck in terms of actually returning to work? How far in the future? Like, is it three months? Is it five months down the road? Two months? How long can they withstand not going back to work and not getting any more pandemic paychecks before they give in? And at, at what point is it too late? So I think you hit on a couple of important points there, right? And so this is the dynamic of hysteresis, right? Effectively, the phenomenon when you stretch a balloon, yeah. um, it never goes back to looking as good before <laughs> you blew it up in the first place, right? right? Um, having lost a ton of weight recently, I, I'll, I'll tell you, hysteresis is a human effect as well. Right. Okay. So the underlying dynamic there is that those individuals are facing two separate issues. One is the way our system works in the United States 
it's different than many places in Europe, right? In Europe, you can go into work and then you leave and you get, you know, effectively a guaranteed subsidy associated with it. Right. In the United States, your unemployment check is a function of what your last paycheck was, right? Up to a certain point. And so perversely, if you decide to take that temporary job at in and out because you can't actually find the job as a corporate lawyer, right? Uh, you are damaging your long-term potential in terms of the benefits. Right. Better served not going back to work, right? Uh, the second component, and this shows up very clearly in the relationship between job openings and unemployment, is that the cost of job openings, the cost of holding a job opening has collapsed, right? So in order to show a job opening 20 years ago, I had to print a help wanted ad in the newspaper and do so on a continuous basis, right? Because that was an active process, you actually, it was, you know, if you didn't actually have a job available, you wouldn't necessarily post right. it, right? Now the costs, when I use things like Indeed, et cetera, right? I only pay for that when I hire somebody, right? It's a, it, it's a, um, not an effort-based payment. It's a, um, results-based right. payment. Right now, you could argue that improves the value relatively. And of course, we've seen everything massively shift online, but it also reduces the intensity of search as measured by job openings. It costs me nothing to say, hey, I'm interested in hiring people. Sure. If you have a Harvard PhD and you're willing to work for minimum wage and you were a consultant to the president of the United States, not the last one because he was a jerk, but the one before <laughs> that, right? Like, I mean, if you may meet every possible criteria, then yes, I actually do have a job opening for you, right? But until then, I'm just going to use bots to filter through right. the resumes I get, and they're not really job openings. And again, our policymakers, I would suggest, aren't making those adjustments. So is there, so is there, there some overinflation in those numbers? Oh, I, yeah. I think there's absolutely no question about it. Okay. The gap is not nearly as wide as you would think just from looking at the surface numbers. Yeah. Where it is wide is at the very low end, right? right? Or, I'm sorry, but where there is excess demand is at the very low end, right? Basically people who are willing to work for near minimum wage in relatively crappy jobs like retail and food service, right? right? Um, and jobs that are vulnerable to obsolescence, to like near-term obsolescence. Correct. Right. Right. Where, where you're at, if you actually look at the higher end jobs, you're actually seeing wage pressure. As corporations that, you know, a year ago said, oh, we don't care where you are as long as you can work online, are suddenly starting to say, yeah, dude, you moved to Iowa. I'm not going to pay you the same increase in wage that, you know, the guy in Mountain View gets. Right. Right. And also, obviously, if I can get the same productivity out of employee working from home in Iowa, then I could probably get the same productivity from an employee working out of Saigon or Myanmar or Mumbai, et cetera, right? Which, you know, I think over the next decade, right back to explored very explicitly. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I am, um, I ultimately think policy is going to prevent some of that from happening. I think that we are approaching a change in the way society treats that, but I, I, I'm sympathetic to what you're saying. Right certainly in today's world. Right. So well, many of the inflation arguments, which I, I want to sort of switch to inflation as sort of a, a moral panic. Ben Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
are, I think, using inflation as the flashpoint of a an ideological argument, right? And yep. maybe the correct framing for this argument is around this discussion of MMT, um, or at least how MMT is perceived and used as part of the political dialogue in Washington, right? So yep. obviously the current fiscal stimulus infrastructure bill um, is is the current focus, right? But I think those who are hollering about inflation, really the subtext is big government is causing inflation. The obvious answer to that is to, uh, is small government, right? Small government, lower taxes, um, and more of a sort of individualistic ideology, right? And those who are um, downplaying inflation are leaning into um, Mosler and Kelton and and this sort of fiscal expansion and um, supporting those at the lower end of the economic spectrum and introducing um, a social safety net, right? So first of all, do you agree with that characterization or would you, would you reframe it? Um, and how large a, uh, a role is this inflation meme playing as part of this conversation, do you think? Um, so first of all, I agree with exactly what you said, that effectively it's not an argument about inflation. It is an argument about, um, I, oh my gosh, the government has expanded uh, the, the benefits and is, you know, uh, printing money. And therefore that puts my billions of dollars at risk. Right. Um, and that's very easily amplified. And we see this in, you know, Google trends data where searching for inflation has exploded, et cetera. Right now. Is it any surprise if CNBC is going on 24 seven about inflation or, um, you know, real vision or any, you know, Twitter, et cetera, is going on and on about inflation that people are going to raise their inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. No. And are they going to report because everybody wants to sound smart, right? They're going to report. Oh yeah, no, inflation's a problem. Right. Um, and on the flip side of it, anybody who says otherwise, and it's like, no, I actually do think that this is transitory. And I do think that the conditions that enable a sustained inflationary pulse in the way that you're thinking of in the 1970s, those conditions just don't exist today, right? Well, then you're a statist, right? I mean, you can't possibly be dumb enough to believe the data that's reported. And oh, by the way, the inflation data that we receive is massively false anyway. So the fact that you would even believe that just betrays how stupid you actually are. Right. Um, as you know, I celebrate anytime I'm called the dumbest man. Alive. <laughs> like, I think that is possibly the best thing that can happen to me. Um, for a very simple reason, right? Because like I, you know, it, it means that other people are adopting a very simple approach to something. Right. And anytime that happens, I'm psyched. I did a Twitter poll that I'm going to, um, I, I'm going to write some stuff on after this call, you know, asking people what they thought the best asset was going to be over the next decade. 
And the results were 41% of the people said Bitcoin yeah. and 35% of the people said commodities. Right. 4% said bonds, 20% said stocks right now. I mean, regardless of what you think of Bitcoin or not, right. Um, and my dogs are freaking out because in classic inflationary form, my, uh, garage door opener broke in the rain last night. The humidity finally took out my 20 year old garage door opener. And so the, uh, the guy is here to replace my garage door. Opener. Oh, I thought you had <laughs> just, uh, trained the dogs to bark every time you yeah. get Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's that, you know what, that would actually be, that'd be a good trick. Um, <laughs> anyway, but so, so we, we've entered into a regime in which where commodity prices are near record highs across many commodities. We're already seeing demand destruction in places like oil and natural gas. And everyone's convinced that like, oh, well, the only path is higher. Right. That feels so wrong to me that, it, you know, I can't even, I, I, it, you know, I, I, I have a hard time entertaining it seriously, which is also a warning sign to me, yeah. right. That, you know, maybe I'm being too flippant in, in terms of the treatment of this, but I actually really think if you look at the data, it just doesn't support it. Right. Um, I do think that that performative art, that Ben Hunt, Epsilon theory, inflation, right. Bitcoin, you know, collapse of the dollar, all of these things are speaking to, and the Canadian dollar by extension, I assume, right? I mean, all of these things are speaking to the fact that people are actually quite unhappy with many of the choices and the way that they feel that their lives are going right now. And so if you look at a government that handled a pandemic incompetently and pulled your children out of school unnecessarily, and, you know, regardless of what you want to, to argue, right? Let's, let's just accept that some of those things are more true than others, right? Yep. Certainly from my perspective, if your narrative is automatically skewed, uh, there we go, is automatically skewed to, this is all a giant screw up, then you're prone to believe various conspiracy theories that say, you know what, there's hardworking BLS economists that are out there changing the price labels in grocery stores so that they don't, you know, have to actually report the inflation. Um, because you know, those hardworking economists have what incentive exactly. Right. I mean, it's just very, you know, it's, it's very strange. I find it frustrating. So I, I think where they're making the chip bag smaller. Well, that's yeah. well, too, and those are all, but those are very valid. Like, like that is actually a form of inflation, yeah. right? That is a form of price increase. You can, if you are a sole producer of chips and there's no longer an artisanal chip producer, who's wrapping them in wax paper with twine and selling them in, you know, XYZ store because nobody's going to stores, right? They're not going to the small little tiny store that is now shut down in Brooklyn to buy right. the artisanal chips. And so they are now forced to go buy Doritos like the average American. Right. Well, that gives Frito-Lay an advantage, right? And so Frito-Lay would be foolish and working against the interest of its shareholders if it didn't take advantage of that opportunity. So my sense and where I, where I, where else I wanted to go with this discussion is of inflation as a meme is that it's complicating what would otherwise already be a very complicated conversation because I think what, what you end up with is that political progressives end up understanding that the word inflation is being used as a political football 
and and then feel that they need to defend the transient narrative more vociferously than they might otherwise, because there's a fear that if there's an admission that there is sustained the potential of, of secular inflation, that it may undermine the ability of the political parties to pass what is perceived as constructive policy, right? And so you get this preference falsification dynamic at play where even those economists who might actually see the potential for secular defla uh, inflation in certain important facets of the economy are, are constrained in their ability to talk about it because they feel it adds gravitas to the um, the other political party that maybe is arguing inflation as a reason um, to miniaturize the you know fiscal packages, for example, right? I mean, I could certainly make an argument for why there may be a secular shift in the direction of energy prices, right? As a function of 10 years of um, emaciated uh, capital investment in energy infrastructure for basically the same reasons that you've identified for why nobody wants to go into the trucking industry or into the fast food industry, right? Because they're seeing the writing on the wall about the fact that governments are going to make it increasingly difficult for the a petroleum-based um, energy infrastructure to function, right? And so this move towards ESG and villainizing um, petroleum-based energy is means that it's unlikely that we're going to see a major capital cycle into energy projects. And you could you could say very similar things about lots of other sort of base industries where environmental activism has made it very difficult for uh, companies to open copper mines or, you know, political activists for, to make it feasible for companies to open copper mines or zinc mines or whatever, where most of these materials are located in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa or for other countries, right? So uh, we don't need to argue that case, but all I'm saying is you could certainly, I think you could make a case that we may see a sustained period of secular inflation in, in certain commodity sectors, but it's the whole discussion of inflation is conflated with this sort of political ideology discussion. And, and I, and I think it makes it hard to have a full faith, um, clear eyed discussion of these dynamics. But is, do you think that that's true or am I overstating that case? Um, so I, I think everything that you're saying is correct in terms of the political dynamics. I, I would push back a little bit on the dynamics of the energy sector. Um, although I am sympathetic to the arguments within the fossil fuel space, right? So, you know, part of, part of what has happened within renewables is the collapse in, in the price of silicon, polysilicon because of production in China, right? So subsidized electricity in China made it very cheap to produce polysilicon 
that polysilicon made very cheap solar panels easily available to the rest of the world produced by China. That is now going away. And if you look at something like polysilicon production, the price of polysilicon has again exploded, right? So we're not going to get cheap solar panels. That means that that is going to reduce the proportion of demand that is being served by solar. Uh, wind is no longer receiving the same level of subsidies, et cetera. And so the natural output is that we're going to need, see an increase in demand. Uh, there are sources of demand for power like Bitcoin, et cetera, that have emerged that my guess is long-term won't play as significant a role, um, but they certainly do today. Um, and this is not me trying to attack the Bitcoin community. I'm stating a fact, right? The, the level of, of electricity usage by Bitcoin and hence demand, um, for fossil fuels and, you know, every other source of power has risen. Again, you know, when that comes to the United States and, and, you know, we decide that we're going to, you know, convert coal factories to coal production facility, I'm sorry, coal operating power plants to Bitcoin mining. I mean, they're not available for other stuff, right? So like that is all happening. I think the response function in the oil and gas space is um, overstated. We're already seeing rigs begin to rise again. They are rising in a pattern that is broadly similar to what we saw in the 2016 to 2018 time period. Right. Where again, it took an extended period of time for them to bottom and then recover right? Both the process of shutting stuff down and the lower prices take a while to feed back through. Maybe they don't recover um, to the same degree, but those rigs will also probably be modestly higher productivity than people are broadly going to admit because you're only going to be bringing on the highest, highest quality stuff first, right? So I'm a little skeptical on the supply chain story and the permanence of the impact in the energy space and would just highlight that everybody's forgotten that a year and a half ago, the argument was all about overinvestment in energy, right? That too much money had been spent by irresponsible players. Well, I mean, as you, as you said earlier, right, the problem was a storage problem, not an overinvestment problem earlier, right? I mean, Correct. if you look at the investment in oil and gas or just um, fossil fuels in general, so including coal um, and natural gas over the past 10 or 12 years, you've hit, you've seen every single year, the amount of capital invested in that, in that sector has gone down. And, and now it's, um, you know, it's, it's been nearly zero for the last two or three years. I think in anticipation of a transition to renewables that now seems many more years in the future away than maybe was anticipated 10 or 12 years ago, right? Certainly the conversation is shifting to nuclear, which is a very positive development. Totally in my opinion, but it takes 15 to 20 years to bring on new mm -hmm. nuclear facilities and the same, sadly, the same situation of underinvestment, um, is observed in the uranium space. And it takes far more time and regulatory overhead to bring on new uranium production than it does to bring on new petroleum production. So like, you know, not that this, this needs to turn into a discussion of the merits of, of, um, the potential for a commodity, secular commodity bull market. But, but I do think that it, it behooves us to, I, I, I would just, I would emphasize that there are multiple, you know, so the wonderful thing about price being the intersection of supply and demand is that it can respond to both supply and demand <laughs> and substitution and everything else. Right. Yes. Um, 
if energy prices rise a lot, we will engage in more conservation. More people will live in the same household together because the cost of forming a household will be higher and that in turn will reduce energy consumption going forward. And it'll show up as a reduction in living standards, which we'll all complain about in this performative inflation dynamic, right? But like that that's part of the way a market is supposed to work. I agree. I'm just saying um, that, that yeah. energy would need to rise to the point where it represents a much larger portion of the average consumption basket before it would motivate these types of, I think you'll agree, pretty substantial lifestyle shifts. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I mean, as gas prices continue to rise, right? Gasoline prices continue to rise. In the United States, I think you will absolutely see a shift back towards living in cities and away from living in single family homes where your energy consumption is much higher in the form of gasoline. Right. That's like, th those are very natural outputs from this. That's what we saw break the market. I would argue the break in the economy around housing broadly happened in 2005 last time. It wasn't so much 2008, it was 2005 when the price of gasoline spiked with the loss of refining capacity due to Hurricane Ivan um, and to a lesser extent Katrina, right? That spiked the price of gasoline and basically made it impossible for somebody to live two hours away from their job and drive and have it be an economic calculation. Sure. Right. But I mean, WTI uh, peaked in 2005 at around $80 and eventually went on to achieve a price of $150 in, in mid 2008. Right. So there's it, which is three years after that, that shock. So these dynamics can persist and go and go much further, I think, than um, many people might expect. But th there's, there's, a, uh, there's a nuance here, though, right? I mean, between the, the word inflationary and the word inflation. I mean, inflationary, you know, points towards inflation, looks like inflation, uh, behaves like inflation, but doesn't necessarily translate into inflation, right? I mean, so when, when, when we look at energy prices, they're inflationary right now, but it's not necessarily going to be persistent. It's, it's just, you know, when things normalize or when things come back to, to a, uh, you know, I don't know, pre-pandemic or, or back to normalcy or back to the mean, um, then we'll look back and we'll say, oh, it was inflationary. It wasn't inflation. Right. I mean, there's, there's always these, you know, nuances in language that, that get mistaken for, you know, one for the other, get mistaken for the same thing. Yeah. I, I, so I, I think that's actually a really important point that is being hit. And, you know, Kathy Wood came out today highlighting the fact that she believes that energy, you know, that, that fossil fuel demand for transportation has peaked and, and, um, is not going to recover as people replace electric vehicle, you know, gasoline powered vehicles with electric vehicles. You can take Kathy's, you know, analysis, um, however you would individually like to take it, but it's a pretty valid point. I mean, how inflationary is it that retail gasoline prices in the United States are at the same level that they were in 2006? <laughs> right? They were, were, yeah, 16 <clears throat> years later and they're the same level. Yeah, yeah. Keep in mind, right, that you could call it a reverse must decade. You don't need gasoline and, and energy prices to move to a permanently high plateau, but you can have a three to five year cycle where they end up being, you know, they may end up at sort of a terminal equilibrium price that's a little higher than they were in the previous cycle. But 
Oh, like, I guess what I'm saying is that this can go on for a lot longer than many people expect. And, and the prices could rise to heights that many people. So I, 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 I would about. suggest that the equities tell you the opposite, right? Um, you know, the fact that we are seeing gasoline prices where they are, that we're seeing oil prices where they are, and broadly speaking, energy stocks have been extraordinarily disappointing given the price increases, is warning you that it's not quite as clear cut as everyone thinks. Now, you can argue that makes them extraordinary values, and it's possible that they do, um, that it's possible that that's the outcome, but I'm, I'm going to struggle with that. Right. Um, the, and, and again, like, I just want to emphasize, I'm not denying the idea that we could have an extended cycle, but when you use language, like we've hit a permanently higher plateau, I'm not picking on you for the permanently or the higher component of hitting on the plateau, right? So inflation is caused by the prices continuing to go up and to continue to go up in an accelerating fashion. Right. So again, Jack Dorsey introducing the idea of hyperinflation. So yeah, hyperinflation is caused in a very specific situation, right? Where the supply has been shifted inward permanently and actually continues to shift inward because of bad economic policy at the exact same time that the political realities prevent you from engaging in the austerity that would reduce demand to offset that decrease in supply. Mm -hmm. Right. And even more so, it tends to only occur in regions where you are forced to import a sizable fraction of the basic necessities. Right. So this is, you know, the UK in the 1960s suddenly was faced with the need to import oil and import gasoline in a manner that it had not historically had to do. And the only thing it could do was offer the tradable goods and services of the UK public in order to be able to acquire that. What that effectively meant was that every single person in the UK had to work harder and harder to pay that bill, right? And it ultimately manifested itself with devaluations, et cetera, which were very difficult to occur in a fixed exchange rate that existed prior to the collapse of Bretton Woods. Right. So you, you had all of these types of characteristics that played through. And again, is it possible that the U S desperately needs to buy stuff from abroad that we can't possibly replace with domestic production? Man, I gotta tell you, I just don't see it. I don't see it. TSMC is in the process of building facilities in Arizona that are going to ultimately replace if that, if that facility's capacity is realized. 80% of their existing production, <laughs> right? Now, the reason why that's happening, you could argue is because of massive increases in demand. Again, that's a tough one to really argue that that is growing to meet demand. I would suggest broadly what they're doing is, is they're shipping their crown jewels abroad on the, you know, to offset the potential risk that China takes over Taiwan. Yep. Right? And that's important for the U S and the U S is partially funding that and paying for it, et cetera. But man, if China doesn't take that capacity away. And guess what? We're looking at a world with excess capacity, potentially in semiconductors in only a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, I think we're in violent agreement that the probability of hyperinflation is vanishingly small, right? So I don't think that's it. I, I would go further and just say that the probability of not just hyperinflation, but sustained high inflation is in my analysis low. Yeah. 
I mean, I, right. I, not vanishingly small, but look. I, I generally agree over over time frames measured in decades. I think if if there is a disagreement, it's you know what happens over the next sort of three, five, seven years. But um, you know, uh, I, I'm comfortable in the analysis over three years. The question for me is how quickly will we resolve the supply chains? What I'm seeing in terms of demand destruction and um, increases in capacity that are already being introduced suggests to me that much of the supply disruption will be done sooner rather than later and that you run a very real risk that that performative inflationary response results in the the most vulnerable in our pop populations ultimately being hung out to dry perfect okay right, under the name of austerity and preventing inflation yeah let's let's hope that doesn't happen so i want i want to completely shift gears here because i, I want to make sure we're, we're running up on almost we're, we're running up over 80 minutes here. Yep. And yep. one of the theses that um, you are most well known for uh, is this, I guess, what Gabay and Bouchot in a more recent paper have, have recently characterized as the inelastic market hypothesis. And so I, I'd love for you to introduce our Canadian audience to this thesis and then maybe describe how you see or some of the ways that you see this potentially playing out over the next five to 10 years. Sure. Um, so Gabang Poijin introduced the term, the, uh, the inefficient or the inelastic market hypothesis. Um, Bouchon has expanded on, and I actually need to read his paper. I've not read his yet. Um, and also the work of Valentin Haddad at UCLA, it's worth bringing into this discussion, right? Um, uh, Haddad effectively, so, so Gabay and Kwajit identified this dynamic of inelasticity and just to very clearly articulate what that means, inelasticity is the market's um, uh, change in price for a change in supplier demand, right? So if supply increases a little bit, prices fall a lot, that's a highly elastic good, right? Um, I'm sorry, highly inelastic good in terms of, of the demand function, right? So perfect example of that would be oil in May of 2020. There was no price you could get it low enough to get storage facilities to speculate on it, right? So ultimately it had to go negative to clear. Um, what Gabin and Koyajin have done is, is that they have parametrized the behavior of markets on the introduction of a new dollar, right? So when a dollar flows into the market, what they are highlighting is how much does the aggregate value of the stock market, because that's where they're focused, how much does the aggregate value of the stock market change? And their analysis is, is that for every dollar that comes in, it goes up by about $5. Um, Valentin Haddad, I believe it is, um, has looked at the trend in that and identifies that there is a character that there's a characteristic around passive players that they are dramatically less elastic than active players. And this is the work that you've seen me present. I am obviously not an academic. I would fail as an academic mostly because I was bored out of my mind. But the the underlying character of what I've identified is that there are very different. Um, you know, marginal response functions from a passive player versus an active player, an active discretionary player. My research was 
done in a different way than what Gabay Quajan did or what Haddad has done, where they have effectively built a, um, a matrix of the behavior of holders in response to either a change in price or a flow, right? And so they're looking at empirical data and extracting from that a fundamental signal, right? right? I approached it from a totally different standpoint. I surveyed managers and I asked them the very simple question, how do you respond to valuation changes in your allocation of the marginal dollar? And then um, figured out intuitively the rules by which passive players work, which again, Valentin Haddad is, has validated this. This is one of the nice things about the academic papers that are not coming out is that they largely validate the work that I've done. Um, and so the, the point that I was making is, is as you move from the relatively elastic discretionary managers to the highly inelastic passive managers, you're going to change the character of the market. Right now, what that ultimately means is when I surveyed active managers and I asked them the question, how do you respond to changes in valuation? They became less willing to buy, more willing to sell as valuations rose. Right. And interestingly enough, the intersection of those two, when I surveyed their responses and constructed effectively the best fit polynomial lines, right? The intersection of buy, marginal buying and selling activity, they crossed at 50%, right? So 50% propensity to buy, 50% propensity to sell at exactly the market's historical valuation average. Right. And this then fed into the next layer of analysis, which is when I programmed agents, right? So, you know, bots effectively, when I programmed bots with the characteristic of those demand and supply curves, if you introduce money into the market, valuations rise. If you re remove money from the market, valuations fall. Right. But because they intersect at almost exactly that 50 50, it's a mean reverting phenomenon. Money goes in, right? Eventually valuations rise, players become less willing to deploy capital, valuations begin to retreat, and the cycle begins itself, right? So you end up with a stable set. That's the dynamic when the market is dominated by active investors. Right, yep. Right. But the minute you start introducing passive players who operate under a very different rubric, right? The simplest way of thinking about passive is, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. Yep. Did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. Right. Those are the very basic rules of passive. Uh, when you introduce those players and you grow their market share, it has the perverse effect of raising the valuations in the market, right? Because each incremental dollar that is coming in is willing to pay an unlimited amount effectively for something. Yeah. Right. And so that was what my work led to. It's broadly being supported by the work of the academics that is coming out. And the unfortunate conclusion is if this continues, we end up with a market that becomes increasingly volatile and increasingly disassociated from what we traditionally think of, of as fundamentals. Um, that unfortunately then sets up the conditions where if money ever tries to come out, effectively the next clearing price is almost unimaginably lower than the current price. Right. That's what a crash is, right? A crash is suddenly people discovering that the clearing price for the next trade is 20, 30, 40, 50% below. And the really th the thing that really stresses me out 
right? And, you know, I, I want to emphasize for people that, you know, there's a, a famous expression from Bernard Baruch, the bearish case always sounds more intelligent, right? The perverse dynamic of my work is, is that it explains why valuations are rising, why markets appear so robust, why things are so good in the presence of weak fundamentals. Because the only thing that matters is that passive is gaining, right? Once passive actually experiences outflows, the risk is that my work says the markets crash in a manner that we've never imagined before, right? That we're talking 90% down sort of stuff, right? Markets that don't open. Uh, the very specific example I would point to is the XIB, right? Where it was a purely mechanical system. It was dominated by passive. Passive had risen to about 70% of the market. And suddenly you discovered that once a passive player had to do something involving a significant outflow, all hell broke loose. Right. Right. And, um, I, I, and I don't see a way around that right now. So I want to make sure we explore the mechanics of how this works, um, yep. to a sufficient extent so that people at least have an intuitive grasp of what is going on. Right. So, um, an example that helped me was to sort of think of, um, one of the larger stocks in the S and P, um, let's say it represents 3% of the index. So an index investor deploys capital into the index. Uh, let's say they deploy a hundred dollars into the index. $3 of that needs to immediately be deployed into this one stock because it represents 3% of the index. Let's try to make it even easier. And actually let's call that stock Apple and let's make it 5%. So the math is simple. Great. Go for it. Okay. Um, so, yeah. so when money flows into Vanguard, right? Every dollar that goes into Vanguard has to buy $5 worth of Apple or, or every $100 that goes into Vanguard has to buy $5 worth of Apple. Okay. Now, the reason why Gabay Koijin's work around the inelastic hypothesis and the labeling of the inelastic hypothesis is so important is because it tells you that when that money flows in, the markets are not nearly perfectly elastic, which is the assumption behind the efficient market hypothesis, right? That any one individual change is going to be very small in terms of its impact, right? And so under the EMH efficient market hypothesis framework, Markets represent the cumulative transactions of millions of individual players who are effectively fighting over information content, right? And that's how prices are determined. In an environment in which Vanguard accounts for up to 50 to 60% of the marginal flow that's coming into the market, which is what they do now, right? So each dollar that comes into the market, Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, Etc. the true passive players represent more than a hundred percent of the net flows. Wow. Right. <laughs> so when you actually have that condition, you need to think about how are they behaving? How are, what are they doing? And so every dollar that comes in has to buy $5 worth of apples. There's two separate issues that you face around that. One is, 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 is the ratio of market cap? Is that the right way to think about liquidity within a market? And the answer is. Absolutely not. Because the way that markets are run is that market makers have to put up capital to facilitate order flow, right? Creating an order book. 
that order book doesn't scale with market cap because it would require Citadel or Susquehanna to put 200 times as much money into Apple as they do into a stock that has a $10 billion market cap, right? Ironically, that $10 billion market cap company is going to have a wider bid ask spread, right? It's going to trade not one one hundredth as much as Apple, right? But more like one tenth or one fiftieth as much as Apple, right? So it's actually much more profitable to allocate capital to that smaller business, that smaller company, right? From a market making operation standpoint. And so Apple perversely has less liquidity relative to its demand under that framework than the smaller stock, right? There's another feature associated with it, which is that when you start to think about this dynamic of share gain, as Apple goes up in price, right? It's being pushed up by this underlying flow. The discretionary managers are more willing to sell it because they see that as representing reduced prospects of Apple going forward. Unless they're just a crazy momentum player who's like, oh, the rising price tells me that the prospects are going to improve and therefore I should increase my valuation, right? And perversely, because that person, that crazy person who thinks that the price is going up and I'm not actually labeling them as crazy, it's just a, a, an alternate way of thinking about it, right? Because their performance is actually enhanced, they then attract more capital. And so the holders of Apple become increasingly price inelastic relative to the holders of say Delta airlines or XYZ small co. Right. And it's a feedback mechanism, right? So the price of Apple rises at a faster rate for the underlying dynamics that you described, it continues to represent a greater fraction of the total index. So the index begins to look more and more attractive because it's rising at an accelerated rate. But really all that's happening is that you're getting more concentrated flows into a smaller number of stocks that have a mismatch between their their market cap and the amount of flows that it can that they could accommodate um from right. a given session right correct and, and by the way every bank knows this right so you know like in doing my work around this i reached out to various banks and i said hey can you help me understand market the impact of market orders right and what you discover is, is that they have models of this and they don't scale proportionally to market cap, right? They scale less than proportionally. In other words, the beta of its ability to scale is less than one against the market cap feature, mm -hmm. right? We know this, we know that the models are untrue, right? And when it becomes a dominant feature, the models that were wrong, but useful now become harmful. Mm -hmm. So, um. Mike, what causes the, uh, what type of an event would precipitate the reversal? So there's two separate components to it, right? So a big chunk of the underlying flow dynamic is simply a function of relative penetration. So if I, if I think about the statistics that say, make life simple, passive is 50% of the market, right? It's actually about 44, 45% as of today. And people will point to Vanguard, BlackRock, et cetera. And they're like, oh, that can't possibly be the case because they only represent 25% of the market. What you're forgetting is, is that passive is far more penetrated in the institutional space. I actually strongly encourage anyone who really wants to geek out on this to read Robin Wigglesworth's latest book, uh, Trillions, that talks about the history of passive. And what you will realize is, is that retail was a latecomer to the passive indexing yeah. dynamics, right? They were much more passively penetrated 
on the institutional side? This is the 401k um, plans and. Well, and so look, the 401k plans are, that's a really good example, right? Because again, regulatory changes have changed the structure of the market. Yeah. So if I look at 401ks for those under the age of 40, or I look at the marginal dollar going into a 401k, about 85% of that is now passive and in the form of a target date fund, yeah. actually possibly more than 85% of it is passive. And it's a, it's a juggernaut, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's every two weeks, every month, money just keeps flowing in from from DC, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it is an absolute juggernaut. And again, though, remember that what's happening is that about 70% of the assets are held by those over the age of 65. Their penetration is only about 20% passive. So when they are taking money out of the market, they're firing active managers. Yeah. And they're, they often, if they have surplus, are hiring passive managers because it's the new thing that they should be doing, right? The younger generation that's coming in is almost exclusively passive. Their market share is 90 to 95% passive. And as they mature into having more and more wealth, they have no reason to change, right? Because among other things, we've told them that passive outperforms. Yeah. There's empirical evidence to support that statement, right? Um, I, I think it's screwy in terms of the empirical evidence, but that's fine. Um, so we, we have this system that does not really go into reverse until you get enough old people that have passive vehicles. And then you run into a very interesting problem, which is that wealth is a function of the asset and the withdrawals are a function of wealth, right? So in 401ks, for example, or in spending intentions, typically people are going to withdraw a percentage of the value. But contributions scale linearly with incomes, right? Right. So unless you increase the proportion, and we've done all this, right? But unless you're changing and screwing around with contribution amounts, et cetera, it just grows with income, right? So you have this perverse effect of markets becoming more inelastic. So each dollar that goes in drives their prices higher and higher and higher. Again, to go back to Valentin Padat's work, he estimates that the increase in the inelasticity of the market for the penetration of passive is about 50%. Um, his official headline is about 15%, but that's because he's trying to present as conservative a number as he possibly can. If you actually read the paper, it's closer to 50. Um, and so you, you have this dynamic of markets going higher and higher and higher as money flows into passive. And then that whole thing just breaks the minute you try to take money out of that. Right. Right. So what do you, when we have net selling of passive is when this ultimately breaks and it's it, hard to know exactly when that occurs so, because there's regulatory changes, there's demographic features to it, et cetera. So I, I have a thought, which is that, you know, we've seen, you know, like if you have a million dollars, let's say you're a retiree, you've got a million dollars just to make it the, the math easy at a two and a half percent yield uh, of income from your assets, you can expect $25,000. Right. Yep. I mean, I had this discussion a couple, a week and a half ago. And so a million dollars isn't what it used to be. Um, at one and a half percent, if you just take the, you know, one or 1. 1.6%, whatever the 10 year is at, that's 16 grand. So, so if you're, if your retirement nest egg once produced $25,000 a year on the, you know, on past capital market assumption, and then today it produces half of that then you have to withdraw more in order to meet that original income 
target of 25,000. So if you, you were getting 25, if you were expecting to get 25 or $30,000 in the past, and now you can only expect to get $15,000 out of that million, then you got to take an additional 10 to 15,000 more in order to supplement your income, right? Or your nest egg has to be twice the size. But, but right. so doesn't and, that, doesn't that place, doesn't that, the fact that yields are at these historical lows make it even more challenging based on the, I'm just going on the basis of what you were just explaining, which makes a huge amount no, of sense, no, no, but, no. but that means you need to take even more from your pool in order to supplement your lifestyle as a retiree. Unfortunately, perversely, it also though drives higher allocation to equities yeah. as you get older. Right. And so. So again, you know, if, if I go back and I look at that survey that right. I did, right, the big loser was bonds, right? 4%. <laughs> Contrarian in me says there's a problem there, yeah. right? Because yeah. what people are failing to consider is the fact that the 1.6% in nominal terms could end up being a home run, right? right. <laughs> if everybody suddenly decides you know what, um, I've now got enough. My assets have risen from 1 million to 2 million and the yield is 1.6%. So I now get 32,000 as compared to the 25,000. My incentive structure becomes shit, switch all that to bonds. Yeah. It wouldn't take right, right, right now. Right, right. Switch it to something that like mainly. Yeah. Right. The feed, the feedback associated with that is more complicated. Right. The, the, you know, the higher asset price leads people to say, oh my God, it's inflation. Therefore I may need more. Right. Um, it could lead to any number of, of components. But the other thing that people tend to forget is you, you don't just have to spend your dividend. You're supposed to pay down the principal. You're not supposed to end up, you know, what's the, uh, the adage, you can't take it with you. Right. You know, like I know we're all panicked for our children and I know we all want to leave as much as we possibly can. But there is a point at which you have to say, okay, well, if I've got a 30 year retirement, I can have $2 million and spend zero of it and live off of the interest, or I can start saying, okay, I'm going to amortize that 2 million over 30 years. And guess what? That works out to $60,000 a year. Yeah. So you, yeah. So there's also, besides switching away from equities to bonds and liquidating equities, you're also potentially liquidating equities in return for annuities, right? Which, which have a much right. better, much better payout rate than today's income products. Right. Yeah. Precisely because they consume the principal, yeah. right? Which we tend not to, to, to recognize as we think about bonds. The really core issue is, is that it, you know, we treat these products as if they are substitutes, right? So we say, well, how much of your portfolio should you have in bonds? How much should you have in equities? Yeah. The reason that's an issue is just because it fails to ignore the payout characteristics, right? So those are not equivalent instruments unless you include options, right? So the really important thing to remember about equities is that the minute you buy the equity, right? The point of maximum certainty has already been passed, right? You know exactly what you paid for it. You have no idea what it's worth in the next period. And even less in the next period after that, the period after that, et cetera, the cone of possibility expands over time and hit its point, hits its point of maximum at the point where you're planning on selling it. Bonds do the exact opposite. 
right? The point of maximum certainty on a riskless bond, a government bond, is actually at maturity. It's effectively an American football shape, yeah. right? Hopefully, you've got a positive interest rate, and so it's rising over time, right? But those payoff functions can't be reconciled. They're not substitute assets. And so effectively, what you have going on right now is just people taking on massively increased end-of-life risk in exchange for the perception that their wealth is expanding in a greater fool dynamic, right? I'm going to sell it for bonds at some yeah. point, but just not yet, right? Lord, make me silver, but not today. <laughs> Chased, I think. Um, wow. So how do you think, first of all, what probability do you ascribe to um, the proposed mark-to-market capital gains tax um, that Yellen has been... Uh, discussing or at least, you know, floating in the media the last few days. And would that maybe be a catalyst for a reversal um, of flows out of equities that might trigger some of these um, exodus? It's possible, but um, I guess the way I would describe it is, is that you're handicapping now two things, right? The event of that legislation passing and then the reaction function associated with it. And the thing that worries me most is not so much, um, do people sell equities because people sell equities every single day. It becomes a question of who sells equities, right? And what form do they sell those equities in? And so if you see price insensitive selling, in other words, redemptions coming out of actively managed funds, then I get very concerned. Or pass, right? pass but, I guess, or the, uh... yeah, that's, I mean, that's honestly all I care yeah. about, right? I mean, in all seriousness, you can change this, you can, you can change the day-to-day -day path. And you see this particularly within sectors, right? Where the active management sector, you know, decided, gets it in its head that a signal has come that says inflation is coming and therefore they all rush to inflation sensitive sectors, right? Which on the margin raises the value of those versus the stuff that they were selling. They were selling the high quality, um, work from home stocks and buying the energy stocks, et cetera, because of the, the perceived inflationary future, right? That motion is absolutely going to influence price behavior. And we saw that in the most incredible anti-momentum rally we've ever seen in history, basically beginning with the Joe Biden election, right? Why did that happen? The uncertainty around the election led people to reduce their allocations, right? When they reallocated, they went to try to buy and discovered, hey, guess what? The energy stocks are already owned by Vanguard, BlackRock, and, and State Street. And if I try to buy it from them, there's no way to get them to sell it to me. So the people I'm trying to buy from are also all people who have come to this wonderful conclusion that inflation is just around the corner, right? And therefore they're unwilling to sell. In other words, the inelasticity of that sector rose dramatically, right? So that sort of behavior that we're seeing that sort of stuff happen to me is, is very clearly tied to my underlying piece. I, and, and by the way, use the academic paper, um, uh, how Jang at Michigan state came out with a piece, um, called, uh, evaluated indices, not meaning value in that context, but market value. Um, there's a must read for understanding that, right? So effectively Fama French works in reverse 
until the active managers redeploy and then it, you know, becomes turbocharged. I was listening to Mike, I was listening to your conversation with Grant Williams from last summer. And, um, you, you talked about the trades on the, uh, a shares in China that were yeah. happening out of the Singapore futures market and, yeah. and the consecutive days that one, no transaction, thing, no, but the no transactions, but, but money was flowing in, into the markets yeah. through the futures. And what, I mean, does the same, does the, there's a similar kind of dynamic is this, is a similar kind of situation possible where, where you have, um, you know, not only possible, but probably yeah, where you have the reverse happening, right? Where you have futures trades taking place. We've seen it in both yeah. directions, yeah. right? I mean, I, I would highlight that's all AMC and GameStop is, yeah. right? Um, it's a stock that exhibits incredible inelasticity. Tesla, the exact same way it goes into the S and P 500. Did anything fundamentally change about Tesla? No. Did the willingness of people to short Tesla evaporate? Yes. Did the willingness of people to sell their Tesla you know, based on some fundamental belief tied to, um, you know, a higher price indicating a lower future return. Like those people didn't own Tesla in the first place. Yeah. Right. So when S and P had to show up and buy $70 billion worth of Tesla, guess what? Yeah. Price explodes. Yeah. The lowest level of short interest in the history of the yeah. stock. Wow. That's right. a perfect right. example. We've, yeah. Awesome. Awesome example. Yeah. Um, Nick, so we've, we've had you for an hour, 50 minutes. Two hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah you... <laughs> so been incredibly generous as usual. Thank you so much. And, and insights. Thanks for coming on. No, I, Aaron, listen, I, I, I genuinely appreciate the opportunity to talk to people in an extended framework, right? Because among other things, the problem is, is that we're all using models to approach the world. We know that we're using models and all models are wrong. Some are useful is a very useful adage to remember, mm -hmm. right? But the model of the universe in a classic Newtonian sense, very valuable for a macro dynamic of getting to the moon. But the minute you start trying to do semiconductors with Newtonian physics, it collapses, right? You can't do it. We're now at a point where I would argue that many of the simplifying assumptions that we allowed to govern the way that we manage our assets, that we manage our policy, right? We're approaching that transition, that phase transition where it really matters that we understand the models, whether those are inflation from the 1970s, whether that's the impact of passive on markets, et cetera, that creates a period of tremendous fragility and instability ahead of us. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can do is try to raise awareness of it, right? We're not, I can't out lobby Vanguard at BlackRock. It's not going to happen. Yep. yep. Right. But what I can do is actually position people to understand what sits ahead. Which you have done and continue to do very effectively and generously. So thank yep. you. Mike, and where, where can people find you? Uh, in my basement. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> with your dog. Yeah. Uh, it's very hard not to find me, um, but the easiest, easiest way to find me is on Twitter at profplum99, P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M-99. Yep. It's a joke. I look like Bassini <laughs> uh, for the Princess Bride. I look nothing like myself. So just, you know, accept that. I'm not going to go into the detailed explanation of it. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, you can also find my writings through Simplify's website and the products that I manage through Simplify at www.simplify.us. 
and we will be increasing the, the amount of long form non-spoken communication that we do. So I look forward to people's feedback on that. Awesome. That's brilliant. Mike, Mike, one last question. Um, would you rather, so would you rather question, would you rather spend a week in the past or spend a week in the future? Oh, the future. Not, not any question in my mind. Um, yeah. I look, I, we are at an inflection point. We're at a point of, of uncertainty in a manner that I would argue most of us have underappreciated. Um, but I tend to like, I'm very good friends with Josh Wolf of Lux Capital, right? So Josh and I, I think the unifying characteristic is that we both look at the world and we look at the potential of human ingenuity and innovation and say, man, I want to live in a world where that has been optimized and maximized. And that's always going to be the future. Awesome said. So awesome. Thank you so if, much. If you, if you could transport me a hundred years, I'd be yes. If you could transport me a thousand years, I'd say yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Love to see it. Yep. Fantastic. Same camp. All right. Thanks again, sir. Thank you so much. That was, uh, that was amazing. Thanks.